Some were happy, some were sad, but nearly all of my early writings had two things in common. They were based on my true experiences, and most of them were written to the exact same melody. Anderson, everything you write sounds like you stole the tune from the Baptist hymnal, Killen would say, and he'd sit patiently with me for hours, teaching me the art of crafting a song. He'd show me how one line had to build off of the line in front of it, and how a writer had to construct a song to reach a certain climax at a certain point. Mostly, though, he worked with me on my melodies. The lyrics always seemed to come easier to me, and I'd try to let the lyrics suggest a melody. In other words, if I were writing a happy song, I'd try to come up with a happy-sounding melody. The same would be true in reverse if I were writing a sad song. But I wasn't as creative melodically as I was lyrically. Truth told, I'm still not. I signed an exclusive songwriter's contract with Tree Publishing Company, and Buddy and I became not only business associates but close personal friends as well. I confided in him one morning about the latest catastrophe in my love life, and before the day was over, he and I had collaborated to write I May Never Get to Heaven, a heartfelt ballad everybody from Don Gibson to B.J. Thomas to Aretha Franklin would record before Conway Twitty would finally take it to number one nearly 20 years later. And it was Buddy Killen who, in the late summer of 1958, asked Owen Bradley if he'd come by the tree offices one afternoon and listen to some songs written by the skinny disc jockey from Commerce, Georgia, who wrote City Lights, and perhaps to consider this DJ as a recording artist for Decca Records, where Mr. Bradley had recently been named the chief of Nashville operations. A great musician and record producer like Owen Bradley, one of the architects of the Nashville sound, didn't need to make house calls. But out of respect for Buddy, he came, and I sang, just me and my guitar, and he listened. After about a half hour or so, Owen said, Well, son, you're not the greatest singer I've ever heard, but you sure do write some terrific songs. And your voice is different. You certainly don't sound like anybody else I've ever heard. If you'll keep writing songs as good as these, and if you'd like to try, I think we might be able to make some hit records together. And as simple as that, I became Bill Anderson, Decca recording artist. Owen and Buddy told me my job was to get busy writing some new songs for my first recording session. They'd take care of getting all the legal documents drawn up and the paperwork in place. I went back to commerce and back to school. Once or twice, I returned to the roof of the little hotel and tried to write, but lightning never struck there again. I did write some new songs, but in other places. In a few weeks, my recording contract arrived in the mail. I didn't even read it. I was so excited, I just signed it and sent it back before anybody had a chance to change their mind. I flew to Nashville and cut my first record for Decca in Owen Bradley's legendary Quonset Hut studio on 16th Avenue South in August 1958. And before winter quarter began at school, I had become the only student in the history of the University of Georgia to have a record in Billboard magazine's country music charts. Heck, I was probably the only student in University of Georgia history who'd ever heard of the Billboard magazine country music charts. Recording in Nashville with Owen Bradley for Decca Records was a far cry from recording in an empty TV studio in Georgia with a bunch of cronies and pals for TNT. I was scared half to death just looking around the room and seeing musical legends like Buddy Emmons poised behind his steel guitar, Tommy Jackson with his fiddle. Hank Sugarfoot Garland and Grady Martin on their guitars, Bob Moore on the bass, and Buddy Harmon on the drums. These were the cream of the crop, the pickers whose music I played every day on my radio show back home, and now they were in the studio waiting to play behind me.
and the equipment. I had never seen a gold-plated German-made telefunken microphone before, much less ever sung into one. And the first time I heard my voice played back on the huge studio speakers, in stereo no less, it was almost more than I could comprehend. Owen didn't hire a vocal group to sing in the background on my first session, and I was a bit disappointed about that. Groups like the Jordanaires and the Anita Kerr Singers had become the rage in Nashville, especially on records aimed at the new lucrative crossover market, and I had had just enough local success with my rockabilly No Song to Sing to have my heart set on recording for Decca in a similar style. No, we're going to record you straight country, Owen said when the subject came up a few days before the session. He said,